0: I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. Hopefully you have a Bible with you, whether in your hand, uh, hard print, or at least on your phone that you can go through. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You'll also find sheets, of course, on your seat that are outlines. If they're helpful for you, please use them. I don't do it for my health, but if they're not helpful for you, just set them aside. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Well, you could split this semester into... Two pretty clean pieces. This semester is called Ambassadors. If you've been here for any length of time, you know we're going through a study on what does it mean to be an ambassador of Christ. That's the language Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.20. The first part of the semester was focused on this, the message of the gospel. You can't be an ambassador if you don't know the gospel, if you don't know how to proclaim it, or if you don't know how to teach it, if you don't know how to live it. So it's focused on message. Now we switch gears just a little bit, last week and this week, and moving on from here to, not message, but method. Method. I want to ask the question, does method matter? Does method really matter that much? Obviously, message matters. We spent a lot of time on the ins and outs of the gospel. What the gospel is, remember Matt's on what the gospel isn't. Message is crucial. It's important. What about method? Is method really all that important? Uh, Some people have compared evangelism to running into a burning building to grab someone and save their life. It is a bit like that. And in their defense, they say it doesn't matter how you get that person out of there as long as you get them out of there. Is that a fair analogy? I don't quite think it is. Others have said that uh, if we do this and even just one person is saved, it's worth it because one person got saved. And I hear that argument. I've used that argument myself But I'm not sure it's a fair one. What if we did it a more sound way? What if we did it a more wise way? And at least, humanly speaking, more people came to know the Lord or more people were exposed to the gospel. I remember being in Australia on a summer project and we had a table with candy bars. And people would come by and you could get these free candy bars. And it said, just like the gospel, or just like this candy bar, the gospel is free. That was the message. Is that a fair method? disseminating the gospel. I wonder, what do you think? Does method matter? Well, we would do well to observe both method and message tonight, both since the bulk of our semester has been on message. I hope that this supplements and helps you. But tonight we'll look a lot at method. I want to be a real shot in the arm for you as you think about method. Does method matter? Well, Christ is going to help answer that question. Let's look at John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Anxiety probably would have been way too weak a word to describe the feeling that the Pharisees were feeling at this time. The emotions the Pharisees were experiencing were extreme. John had come in, John the Baptist raised this huge ruckus, but Jesus was doing even more. John had caused quite a stir and said some rude things, like, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, Pharisees, turn to me and repent, or turn towards Christ and repent, the Lamb who uh, is coming, who takes away the sins of the world. He spoke boldly into the life of the Pharisees and caused quite a stir. But Jesus has caused yet a larger stir. The Pharisees, if you will, checked the religious pulse. They knew what was happening spiritually in the land, and it was quickening. And to avoid premature conflict, Jesus left the area, and verse 4 says he passed through Samaria. Actually, it says he had to pass through Samaria. He was on his way up to Galilee. And I wonder, man, if you would put that map on the screen. Do you have that map, Austin? I thought this would be helpful for you. It's been helpful for me. Uh, this is just a picture I took on my phone out of the Bible. Last week, Deontay taught, and we were in Jerusalem. Do you see Jerusalem there towards the bottom? After Jesus, yeah, perfect, thank you. After Jesus taught Nicodemus in Jerusalem, he went south into Judea, but then he's going way up top towards the north in Galilee. You see that? He's got to pass through where? Samaria. Samaria, right in the middle, okay? And you see on that map, Sinkar, and then I don't know if you can read it, but that's Mount Gerizim. Okay, so it says Jesus, thank you. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Here's an interesting statement. Did he have to pass through Samaria? No, he didn't. In fact, most people, at least the devout Jews, wouldn't pass through Samaria. They would go around. They would cross the Jordan and spend time on the east bank before traveling up into Galilee. Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. But he had a divine encounter. He had an encounter scheduled. Jesus had to pass through Samaria in this sense. He had a meeting, an appointment as we're about to see. Verse 5, He came to the town of Samaria called Sincar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. and It was about the sixth hour. I want you to know this well is still there. I I tell you that not just as a statement of fact, but if you're like me, sometimes we can think, As we read these stories, just some kind of mythical ideas. But you can go, and many from our church have gone and visited this well today. Uh, I was just reading in my quiet time this week, Genesis 48, where Jacob, or Israel, gives the well, gives the area to to, uh, Joseph, his son. So imagine with me, if you will, put yourself in this story. Change your mind, think for a minute, get in the story, and sit beside Jesus in the hot weather at the well. Not just any well, but Jacob's well. A historic place, a well-known place, and a place that's still there today. I want you to miss not that Jesus was human. Don't look over this too simply. John includes this because if liberalism is in danger of polluting our view of Christ's godliness, or excuse me, his divinity, evangelicalism is in danger of polluting his humanity, his humanness. Jesus was absolutely human. He was 100% man. He was 100% God as well. But Jesus was wearied from his journey. And as a human, he may have been tempted tempted only to witness when the time was just right. We would do well to learn from this. If you're anything like me, you get tired, you get going on with life, and it's really easy to make an excuse not to be an ambassador, isn't it? It doesn't take long before you come up with a number of ideas in your head of why you don't have to talk to that person. I'm tired. I'm worn out. The situation's not right. According to Roman time, it was the sixth hour. It would have been about 6 p.m. And here we find a conversation initiated. A conversation initiated. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the disciples had taken off, they'd gone into Sinkar to Jimmy John's to get some food while Jesus rested by the well. And this woman walks up. Now, why did he ask her for a drink? Well, he could have actually been thirsty, but when the disciples arrived back with the sandwiches, he didn't even eat, so he probably wasn't thirsty. My guess is he was looking for an opening. We don't know, and we won't ever know for sure, but what we can learn from Jesus is that not only was he always ready, but he was always eager. Jesus was always looking for a chance to initiate with someone, to be around people, to speak into their life, particularly about who he really was. I wondered as I read through this, are you and I eagerly looking for opportunities? Are we eager? Are we chomping at the bit for opportunities to talk about who Jesus is? Are you surprised by opportunities? Do you dodge opportunities by cleverly pulling out your cell phone at just the right time and pretending you're on it so you can dodge a conversation? Or do you gladly accept a conversation when it comes across your path? I trust that you do. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then the editorial note, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A Jewish racism towards Samaritans and vice versa was heated. It was hot. And it dated back to 5th or 6th century B.C. after the Jews had been exiled into Babylon and then they had returned to their home place in Samaria and in Galilee and in Judea. But in the meantime, during their exile in Babylon, different people had moved in there. And not only had different people moved in there, but with them their gods and their religions. And so what you had was a polytheistic culture and religious nature that the Samaritans were engulfed in. And it was an intermarriage not just of the Jews with other people, but of Yahweh with other gods. The word translated dealings here in John's explanatory note literally means to use the same utensils. Jews didn't use the same utensils. They didn't use the same water pots. They didn't use the same drinking vessels as Jews, as Samaritans. Racism was there. It was heavy. It was obvious. Racism is the fruit of the sin virus. It warps and twists our views of other people whom God loves desperately. It's deadly and dangerous. And just as prevalent then, it is prevalent today. And if current events are any indication, the problem is not going to leave tomorrow or disappear soon. It's not going to be eradicated. In fact, by anything except for the radical example of Christ and His love shed abroad in someone's heart. It shouldn't come as any surprise then that Jesus breaks the mold here by cutting through barriers of both race and gender. Race and gender. So what about you? Has this sin tendency been conquered in such a way in your life that race, creed, color, gender create no barrier for the gospel or for its proclamation Do they create any barrier for your expression of God's love towards other people? I trust that that tendency has been destroyed in your own heart and mind so that those barriers do not exist. Jesus' love and witness was indiscriminate. And friends, so should ours be. It must be this way. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water want you to watch how Christ goes from common to uncommon and how he goes from general to specifics. He goes from things like race, religion, and gender to very specific things. Who is he and who is this woman? He goes from something that would appear merely physical to something that's very spiritual. Do you and I do that in conversations? Do we use physical things, common things, to turn the conversation to spiritual things? Do we work from, do we work from common to uncommon or from physical the spiritual, I was thinking as I was studying this passage about how this might play out in your and I lives, I was thinking about some of you freshmen, maybe sophomore, junior, and seniors even in the dorms and in the uh, dining halls at MSU. I was thinking about that sandwich bar. Have you ever been to a sandwich bar in Langford dining hall? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Somebody does. It's the best one. I don't know why you'd go to any other sandwich bar, but I always go there. And I swipe my card and the sweet lady makes conversation. We talk and I go straight to the sandwich bar. And they say, what kind of bread do you want, Tanner? You know what I tell them? I said, "Ma'am, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And she repented right there and turned to Christ. It was amazing. I never did that, but I wondered what if that happened? Or you're standing by someone in the lunch line and they're, griping because the chocolate milk runs out. And what do you say to him? Oh, friend, you need the pure spiritual milk of the Word. (laughs) Not chocolate milk. No, we don't do that. And I don't think it would be all that helpful. But we can use common language. (laughs) We can use common language to talk about uncommon things. It doesn't do any good to pull up in the same place at a table and say, hey, I have some profound theological findings. Can I sit down and have an intellectual conversation with you? No. <laughs> that wouldn't do any good either, would it? Now, it's good to be open and honest, but oftentimes we can move from common to uncommon. In fact, I'm, I know of a story of a young Mormon lady swiping cards in the cafeteria, and over the years she observed a young man coming in who took genuine interest and his peers. He would sit there with his Bible, and he would read it, and he would talk and pray with other people and counsel them. And over time, this lady just had conversations every now and then with this young man. But that young man would learn years later that those simple things like paying attention and caring for people and reading the Bible and praying with people would be the seeds, the first fruits of the gospel shed, a heart, shed abroad in her heart, and she would turn to Christ for salvation. You never know your influence. You never know your influence, whether it's the dining halls, whether it's on the street, whether it's driving around town, or whether it's at Ace Hardware. You never know. So be on your guard. What is this living water? Well, Jeremiah 2.13, you might remember, says this, For my people have committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me, The fount of living water. This is God talking. They've forsaken me, the fount of living waters. And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Listen, God is the fount of living water. He is living water. And when we turn away from Him, when we look to our own ways, we hew out cisterns that can hold no living water. It shouldn't surprise us that only two chapters later in John 6.35, Jesus said to him, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus gave an object lesson, and friends, so should we. We ought to observe tattoos, dress, jewelry, clothing, anything that's happening in the room, ways that we might look for common things to go to uncommon things. She obviously didn't know what living water was either. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This well is deep. In fact, it's over 100 feet deep. But she misses this clearly, doesn't she? She's not catching the flavor or the flow of Jesus' conversation at all. Her objections and barriers this time constitute of ability and significance. Instead of ab- ab- addressing her objections, Jesus focuses on her needs. He was more focused on winning the woman than he was the argument. Don't be surprised when this happens in your everyday conversations with people about the gospel. Neither should you be surprised when they don't understand or observe or comprehend spiritual things. Don't be frustrated. In fact, if we look at this example, Jesus isn't. Instead, he dives further into describing what it is that he means. I want you to notice also that the tables have been turned, haven't they? Initially, he asked her for a cold drink of water. Now she turns to him looking for living water. Verse 13, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So once you drink this water, you're never going to be thirsty again. The spiritual cleansing illustrated here is a once and for all miracle. It reminds me of Hebrews 10:11 through 14 that says this, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You remember this, don't you, as you've read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You go through these passages and you see the arduous task of presenting Daily sacrifices for the cleansing and the specifics that accompany all these. What well, does the author of Hebrews say? Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can what? Never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies became or made his footstool, for by one offering he was perfected forever. He perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Amen? It's once and for all. It's a one-time thing. I was at camp this last weekend uh, and visiting with a high school student. And He came up to me concerned after one of the sessions and he said, Tanner, I think I'm a believer, but you've got to do this twice, don't you? Well, why did he say that? Because as I said three weeks ago, what happens teaches. And he had heard too many testimonies of someone saying, prayed the prayer at 6, walked in sin for a while, prayed the prayer at 10, lived in rebellion for a while, got saved at 21, didn't do well, then uh, kind of fell in and out. And he thought, i got to do this again and again, don't I? And I said, no, listen, you need to understand this is once and for all. You believe and repent and it's done. Whoever drinks of this water will never, ever thirst again. Once and for all. Once and for all. But she's just not getting this, is she? Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. She didn't want to come all the way out here. She was already there at an odd time of day. and She didn't want to come back again. She clearly didn't get this. Have you ever been in a teaching lesson or in a conversation you interact with people that you're talking to afterwards, you felt like it couldn't have been more clear and they felt like it couldn't have been more foggy. Let's let 1 Corinthians 2.14 be of encouragement to our souls. It says this, "...the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit." Jesus again, though unfazed by her confusion, goes on not just another route, but right to the very core of the woman. We find now that sin is confronted. Sin is confronted. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Jesus puts his finger right on that sin issue, doesn't he? Can you imagine if he would have said to this woman the same thing he said to the rich young ruler or to Nicodemus? "Uh, Woman, go sell all that you own. Come follow me and you'll get in eternal life. What would have she said? We don't know for sure, but I imagine she would have said, great, I don't have much. I'll be right on my way. Just give me a second. Or imagine if he would have laid the law against her life. We'll find out in a second she already knew that she was guilty. No, Jesus used discernment. And part of the reason, listen, for looking at our two examples in John 3 last week and in John 4 this week is so we can hold them up back to back and learn from Jesus in this way. At least a measure, if not a whole heap of discernment should be, I would say, has to be exercised during evangelism. Jesus didn't give the same rote response every time he encountered someone. In fact, think about it. The point of conversation in both cases was the same, wasn't it? Eternal life, eternal life. But the specifics were very different. Let's observe some. Nicodemus was a Jew. This woman was a Samaritan. He was a man. She was a woman. He was moral. She was immoral. He was wealthy. She was poor. He was from the upper class of society. She was an outcast. Of society who recognized the uniqueness of Jesus. She saw Jesus only as a passerby or a traveler. And Nicodemus sought out Jesus. Jesus sought out this woman. The conversation with Nicodemus was in Jerusalem. This conversation with the woman was in Samaria. The conversation with Nicodemus was at night. Some have called it Nick at night. The conversation with this woman was around 6 p.m., the conversation with Nicodemus was theological. The conversation... Somebody just got it. Did you hear that? Who, <laughs> Nick at night. <laughs> the conversation with Nicodemus was theological. The conversation with this woman was very common and simple. Yet in spite, listen, of all these contrasts, of all these difficulties, the issue of this subject was the same, eternal life. We could say it this way. Message same, method different. Listen, I hope that gospel sheet that we've gone over and that we talked about is helpful. But if you back up your theological truck to someone with a gospel sheet and say, hey, do you have a half an hour for me to sit and read to you from this sheet? Guess how effective that's going to be? Not very. And while none of us would do that directly, that's what some of us do on accident, isn't it? By God's grace, we've studied and we've learned and we've come to understand the depth of the gospel and we love it and we enjoy it and we're theologically minded and we just go and we... Be be beep, and we just, we just dump it on them. And pretty soon they're lost and you're still talking. I want you to notice that Jesus shared this conversation, didn't he? This is really a dialogue. They go back and forth. Listen, sin must be confronted. Whatever the method, the message is the same. Sin must be confronted. It must come to this point in every conversation. One pastor I was listening to called it the pain barrier. The pain barrier. At some point, the pain barrier has to be crossed. The conversation goes from very natural to very unnatural. It may go from comfortable to very uncomfortable when sin is brought to the table. But it must happen. Let's look at how the woman responds. Verse 17, The woman answered him, I have no husband. And this is where I wish I could have the audio tracked. or I could be sitting by that well and listening to the conversation. I don't know how she said this. Was she mad? I don't have any husband. Was she slow and contemplative? "Um, I don't have any husband. Or did she hang her head low in shame and admit, I have no husband. I don't know. But I leaned towards the latter. This woman had been confronted in her sin. And she said in a pretty nondescript way, I have no husband. As she comments without much detail on the situation. So Jesus, in His grace and in His mercy, goes further. Look at verse 17 again. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. In God's eyes, two people living together does not constitute marriage. We now have shot, for the first time an understanding, this woman's social status, her place in society, why she was at the well in an uncommon time by herself. At the risk of uh, sounding stereotypical, women in those days going to the well was a bit like women in these days going to the bathroom. They went together. So if one of them said, We're going to the well, the rest of them got up and said, We'll come with you, we'll go. So why was she, in light of that, why was she alone? Well, she was a social outcast. I don't mean to be rude. I have a wife. I understand. You guys like to go in (laughs) flocks. But this woman was alone. Why? Because she had no husband. And the woman and the man she was with now was not her husband. He was just another live-in. I talked to a missionary just a little while ago who... Lives and translates over there. He says, Everything's shut down this time of day. It's hot. No one would go out alone, except for this woman who is caught in shame. We go now to worship defined. Worship defined. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. I can't quite tell if this is a nervous shift in the conversation. Or if it's genuine spiritual interest, it may just be a diversion. But I lean towards the fact that this is the first breath of spiritual interest in this woman. Let me explain, if I can, a little bit of the historical context of what's going on. See, the Samaritans, you understood earlier, moved back from their exile, the Jews did, from Babylon, and they intermarried and intermingled, and the gods were mixed up. They were in all kinds of religious uh, chaos. And the Jews looked on them with disdain. Likewise, the Samaritans looked on the Jews with disdain. The Samaritans had built a temple to worship on Mount Gerizim nearby there. The the well they would have been she just would have been able to point up and say, This mountain here. Jesus, is it this one or is it another one? The Samaritans only regarded as authoritative the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so they thought the place to worship was at Mount Gerizim, but the Jews regarded the whole Old Testament as canon, and they saw and understood properly the place to worship was indeed in Jerusalem. She brings that up. This topic could have easily been a rabbit trail in the conversation, couldn't it? It could have easily waylaid an increasingly Godward conversation. This happens to each of us often in conversation, doesn't it? Spiritual matters are brought up, a topic is confronted, and a topic, in turn, heavy on the hearer's mind comes to the forefront, doesn't it? Spiritual matters are brought up, and it turns immediately to what's at the back of their mind. Maybe it's, why do bad things happen to good people? The problem of evil, theodicy. Maybe it's Darwin's finches. Maybe it's, Uh, a bad experience with church. Maybe it's any number of things. But notice how Jesus doesn't avoid her question completely. Instead, he focuses on what is the essential aspect of her question. Worship. Worship. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, in essence, this. The place of worship is less significant than the nature of worship. Let me say that again. The place of worship, the location of worship, is less significant than the nature of worship. Salvation is from the Jews. This is the first flavor of Messianic talk in in Jesus' conversation. He knew and understood and had prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in only 70 A.D., very soon. Jews wouldn't be able to worship at the temple anymore. It was going to get destroyed. And this may be an apt time for you to check your own heart. Why are you at cross life? Why are you at church on Sunday morning? You see, ensuring external conformities doesn't always equal legitimate worshipful living. I say it again. Ensuring external conformities does not ensure worshipful living. This is important for us to understand. Jesus had to help her, and he has to help us understand what is true worship. This is an important question. Look at verse 23 for the answer. The hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And in truth. This is the bread and butter of understanding worship, isn't it? This is the summation of what worship is spirit and in truth. God is spirit. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. What does spirit mean? Uh, spirit means to worship with your heart, the very core of yourself. Not just engaged in exter- external conformity, but very core of yourself. Engaging your hearts and your wills, your very volition in worship, your whole being. What then is truth? Well, truth is worshiping God as He actually is. It is as God self-discloses Himself to us that we ought to worship Him. To worship Him in truth means to worship Him as He has actually revealed Himself. Worshiping a God you've created in your gray matter upstairs is nothing more than idolatry. We must, listen to me, we must conform our worship to God to this. To his word, to what he's told us about himself. Anything else is counterfeit worship. And he will not, listen to me, he will not accept it. We must worship in spirit and in truth. God defines, God defines the manner and method of worship, doesn't he? That's his prerogative. So incorrect views of God pollute and hamper worship. And listen to me, they also hamper and pollute effective evangelism and disciple making. If you don't understand who God is, you have no business making disciples. We must understand who God is. Listen, we're in a society that has made God any number of things. We must, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. There's only four such things in the New Testament. God is, you remember from 1 John, God is love and God is holy. We also read in Hebrews 12.29 that God is a consuming Fire. Here we understand that God is spirit. First Timothy 6.16 reminds us that no one has ever seen or can see God. And Numbers 23.19 says that God is not a man. Finally, Colossians 1.5, if you're taking notes, says that God is invisible. God is spirit. Now, all too often in Christendom, what we have is either one way or the other. We have extremes of either dead orthodoxy. That is, truth, but very little or no spirit. Or we have zealous heterodoxy. We have very much spirit mixed with incorrect and low views of God. All spirit and no truth are all truth and no spirit. These must be avoided. We must worship God as he prescribes. That is, in spirit, in our very core, in our whole being, in a consuming way and in truth as he actually is what he says about himself. We move from there finally to truth revealed or hope given. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. What weighty words. What heavy revelation from God himself. Jesus shrewdly saved the punchline for the end, didn't he? He brought it out when the woman's heart was finally soft and ready. The feelings of wonder, surprise, fear, and joy in this woman could hardly be understood by us. She knew, even though her religion had been polluted by misunderstanding, she knew she awaited the coming Messiah. And here He was, just her and Him. For the first time, she began to understand her heart was finally soft he knew now was the time to offer spiritual healing to her heart. Do you know when that time is in a conversation? Do you know when the law has finally done its work in a man or a woman's heart, and now is the time to apply the healing balm of the gospel? Jesus knew, and He says, "I who speak to you, am He." I want you to notice interesting progression in her understanding of who Jesus is. In verse nine, He says, "She says He's a Jew." In verse eleven. She calls him, sir. In verse 19, she says, You're a prophet. And finally, in verse 25, we understand Jesus is Messiah. The progression, suddenly, Jesus goes from being not just a prophet, but a priest and a king. She begins to understand Jesus as he actually is. It's important for you to understand that the word he, you might have it in your translation, he, there, is not in the original text. Jesus was saying this, I who speak to you am I who speak to you am he said this very intentionally to identify with himself the God of the universe back in Exodus 3:14 I am Jesus was saying part of why this woman's testimony would have been marked by such zeal as she leaves her water pot and goes back into the city was that she didn't have a very reliable testimony Imagine her running back into the city and saying, like she does, a few verses later, "You guys got to come see this man." And what what have they been thinking? What is this, man number seven? But they believed her. They listened to her because she'd been changed. Jesus told her, as she said, everything about her. She's had five husbands, and now she's in another relationship. Would she believe or would she deny? Would she repent of her sin and turn to this Savior, the Messiah? Or would she run? Well, you might know the rest of this story. As Alistair Begg said, the talk, the conversation at the well became the talk of the town. She went back and told others. They begged that Jesus say, stay. Jesus stayed for two days and He testified about Himself from the prophets, probably from the Pentateuch. He cleared up their understanding that He was Messiah. So Jesus says, the harvest fields are ripe. Back come the disciples with the Jimmy Johns. And they're dumbfounded. Why is Jesus talking to a lady? Not just any lady, but a lady who's an adulterer. But she turns, God turns the world, the city of Sincar upside down through this single woman. Well, I want to take a break from the hot sun with you and look at the evangelistic implications of this text for our lives. What is the takeaway for us? Well, it's this first of all. We must we must get the gospel right. We have no choice here. We must have, here it is on your sheet, a sound message. A sound message. We must establish first who God is, what sin looks like, what worship is, and where salvation is found. We must have a sound message message. I hope that's laid in your heart. I hope you understand that because I've spent a lot of time on method. Don't neglect the message. We spent the bulk of our time this semester on this. You need to have a sound message. You need to get the gospel right. But we asked the question at the beginning, didn't we? Does method matter? Does method matter? I trust that Jesus helped you understand method matters immensely. So what have we learned from Jesus? We must have a sound message. We must have a wise method. We must have a sound message. We must have a wise method. I listed on your sheet there some summary points from Jesus' method. Jesus, number one, was spiritually ready even when physically exhausted. Number two, Jesus directed the conversation without dominating the conversation. He was careful, wasn't he? He directed where it was going but he shared his conversation time with the lady. Third, Jesus employed friendship, evangel- friendship, excuse me, friendship evangelism, but certainly not merely friendship evangelism. He'd never seen this woman in his life. He perhaps, after this time, would never see her again. Number four, Jesus didn't let barriers of race, gender, ability, or importance hamper him. Jesus broke down, he crossed barriers, setting an example, friends, for our method in disciple-making. Number five, his primary focus was not winning the argument. It was winning the woman. Jesus was careful how he responded and what he said. She asked a number of questions. He could have said, well, well we could approach this from a historical uh, thought process or a theological process, thought process or let me teach you since I've known all these things since the beginning of the world and I, uh, I am and I was and I will always be, but he didn't. No, Jesus was wise and discerning in his conversation. He was worried about winning the woman, not merely winning the argument. Number six, Jesus worked from common to uncommon. He was creative in his ability to engage strangers. Okay? He didn't use the same method or rote response to every question every time. We can be guilty of doing this, can't we? Like get in a routine. If you're any kind of evangelist, you'd start talking to people, get in some kind of routine. Jesus didn't do that. Now, that's why we looked at these examples back to back. Number seven, he's not put off or distracted by smoke screens or unusual questions. No, Jesus stayed the course. He had a direction. He knew where he wanted to go. He was going to get there in the conversation. Number eight, he confronted sin. Jesus confronted sin. This is, of course, part of the message, but it's also part of your method. He knew that living water could never set on this woman's heart though she realized she was spiritually thirsty. Jesus didn't tell her the rest of the story until He made sure that she understood the beginning of the story. There was no conversion without conviction. And friends, neither will there be in any of our hearts or in any of the hearts of the people that we visit with. What's our conclusion then? Our conclusion is this. A sound message and a wise method are crucial Elements of being an ambassador who must have a sound message and a wise method. Uh, Jesus had to go through Samaria, all right, but not for the reasons the reader immediately thinks. No, Jesus had a job to do. He had a conversation to have and people to make sure knew the truth. The talk at the well became the talk of the town. Jesus used this one woman, clothed in sin and immorality, to turn this little place upside down. He knew they needed to worship, love, and bow down to the Lord, to the Messiah, to the King of Kings. The woman became an ambassador, didn't she? And friends, so should we. You have a mission. Not over in Samaria, but here in Bozeman or Billings, wherever you've come from. An area dead and dry spiritually was now alive and flowing with living water. Fresh, spiritual water. A woman deep in shame was now resting in honor because of what Jesus had said, because of the gift that she'd received. A people confused in worship and polytheism was now worshiping in spirit and in truth. A people confused in worship could now have clarity regarding who God was. And a desolate desert was now ripe for spiritual harvest. And friends, I don't think it's so very different in Bozeman. I don't think it's so very different at Walmart, at Ace Hardware, at MSU, wherever the Lord has you. No, indeed, the fields are ripe. I've been praying that the Lord would send workers out into the harvest fields. Maybe that's you. Indeed, Christ makes all things new. I wonder, though, has He made you new? Let's pray. Lord, Your Word says that You're the hope of Israel. All who forsake You should be put to shame. Those who turn away from You shall Uh, have their name written in the earth. Those who forsaken you will be put to shame, but those who turn to you will find the fountain of living water. You are the fountain. You are the living water. God, may we learn that we need a wise method and a sound message. Each of us be challenged, rebuked, pressed on, in purity and holiness and soundness of doctrine. An evangelistic effort. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.